This week's Creepscast is sponsored by Upside. Download the free Upside app and use promo code MrCreeps to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. And ExpressVPN. Secure your online data today at expressvpn.com slash MrCreeps and get three extra free months for free. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Well, it finally seems that fall is upon us and I couldn't be happier. Let's cozy up with a warm drink and dive into these stories as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a real-life monster. My last victim wasn't human. Written by Realistic Triacle 384 Red River Ripper strikes again. Ten more bodies wash ashore. It was a curious headline to read since I was quite sure I hadn't killed anyone that week, let alone ten people. I mean the nerve of some people acting as though I'm some sort of inhuman monster. No, I'm nothing if not careful, and killing ten people all at once was but. Which begged the question, who or what had killed them? Thankfully, I was in the position to find out. Lionel was a frighteningly small town tucked away into a forgotten corner of the American outback. It was a timid little place that was maybe five years away from total collapse. Already the cracks could be seen, starting with its absolutely pathetic police force. There were maybe five officers in total, and none of them knew what to do in the event of a homicide. So they turned to the next best thing, a doctor, specifically me. Being the sole medical profession in town, I alone had the knowledge to aid in the investigation. It was what made the killings there so easy. So imagine the irony when there came a crime that I was actually entailed to solve. As I stated above, the bodies were all found washed up upon the river shore. Strangest thing was they were all found on the same shore. I assumed the killer had thrown the bodies into the river to hide the evidence. If that were the case, it would have been impossible for them all to wind up in the same location like they did. They also didn't suffer from the bloating and the decomposition associated with waterlogged corpses. Someone was trying to make these bodies look like my handiwork, or judging from the wounds, something. I am no mere killer, dear reader. A killer would chase someone down with a meat hook and mangle the body like a child with their toys. I, on the other hand, take good care of my victims. I start at the neck, delivering a single decisive cut before they can regain consciousness. I also keep them suspended by their feet so the blood doesn't stain their body. When all their veins have dried up, I clean the skin with formaldehyde. Let it dry for six minutes, no more, no less. After that, I apply a moisturizing cream to all relevant body parts. Their bodies are speckless and pristine by the time they're ready to be chopped. Those ten, however, were pretty beat up, as if torn up by a common dog. The skin and meat was splashed open, the edges of every wound jagged and unkempt, and the bones were splintered as handled by the world's worst gardener. There was no respect for the bodies, none. It was despicable. It had to be an animal. I lied to the officers. No human would go through the trouble of doing what it did to the bodies. There was some truth in that, but their condition had not been deliberate. 
Some scoundrel that uh, figured himself the next Jack the Ripper and started slashing up the bodies with a semblance of thought or skill. As if that wasn't disgraceful enough. They had the gal to try and pass this sloppy work as my own. I was furious when the news spread. In a single day, almost five years of careful cultivation had gone up in flames. My name meant nothing. The fear that it incited was a boorish sort that even a child could conjure up. No longer was I the eye in the shadows that you told yourself wasn't real. I was an animal that needed to be put down. Something bad had to be done and being so close to the police gave me just the opportunity. Their investigation was as mismanaged and juvenile as always. But what clues it did unearth proved invaluable. All of the bodies had been last seen in the same location. The old hunting grounds up by the lumber mill. According to the remaining friends, the trip was a collective decision in order to celebrate one of their own recently getting engaged. The hunting lodge had let them check in at about 3.07 in the afternoon. Sixteen hours later, a hiker had happened upon them. Faces bloated with river water. It was as good as any place to start. Of course, I had to be somewhat more discreet in my inspection than the police. An act that I was more than prepared for. When I recognized my passion for the homicidal arts, the first thing I did was shave my head and face of all hair. It was easier to paint a new portrait with a blank canvas. All it took was a wig, fake eyebrows, color contacts, and a surgical application of makeup. The lodge attendants had no idea that it was me. No one ever did. There wasn't much to find in the hunting grounds, though. It was, after all, the forest. There were no shreds of fabric, no missing guns, and not even a body part. Even the section that ran by the river was devoid of evidence. With the mess that had been made of the bodies, there should have been some trace of a struggle. If there was, the forest would not forfeit it. However, in the end, it did not need to. I found my first lead upon returning to the lodge after a long, fruitless day of scouring the forest. Passing through the main lobby, I overheard a peculiar conversation. Get this. The creep wasn't even wearing any neon or whatever. I almost thought he was a deer with all that skulking. My ears perked up at that and I lingered in near the hunters. Yeah, I should have just shot the guy and spared the world an idiot. The other said. I almost did, but the guy scampered off like a freaking rat or something. Couldn't exactly shoot straight with how dark it was. Couldn't even see my gun. The two hunters enjoyed a hearty laugh while I was left to ponder what I had heard. For those who don't know, it's common practice for hunters to wear bright clothing as opposed to camouflage. It prevents other hunters from mistaking them for animals and the like. If what I had heard was true, then someone had been skulking around the grounds at night while wearing dark clothing. There was no better suspect. My nighttime proclivities had left me well prepared to capture the mystery man. The first step was making my way onto the hunting grounds undetected. I couldn't go through the front door even while disguised. A careful enough eye could spy details even makeup couldn't hide. I dressed for the occasion wearing nothing but black and snuck my way inside. The forest was an eerie place to be at night. Not for the long shadows cast under a plump full moon, nor the chill that slithered through the air. It was the sounds that came creeping from every unseen corner. I hated being in the middle of it. The snapping twigs, the whistling branches, the alien calls of animals skulking in the undergrowth, 
and gave one the impression that at any moment, something would leap from and drag you back into the shadows. I hate that sensation of being at the mercy of some figure in the dark. It gnaws at the corners of my mind, robbing me of any peace of mind. In my younger years, it followed me wherever I went. It was in my closet, under my bed, and down the hall. I feared such an itch would drive me mad. As I grew older, however, I found a solution. Why fear something in the dark when that something is you? That all changed in the forest. Once again, I was caught in the dark with all manners of monsters staring at me, as if I needed another reason to despise that cretinous amateur. The hunt was easier than any before it. In the forest, there were no prying eyes or passive witnesses. I only needed to worry about the hunters, but barely. They were far too focused on their own prey. Resisting the urge to drag them away was difficult. If only the temptation had been greater than my rage. I needed them after all. The trick to hunting a predator is not to track them, but rather their prey. I knew they couldn't resist for long. Sure enough, when the hour was at its latest, I spied someone moving through the undergrowth. I had been lingering near one of the hunters and spotted something approaching them. It started as a mere shade slinking through the underbrush, and gradually it evolved into a figure clad in black. They were remarkably skillful at stalking. Had I not expected them, I might not have spied their approach. Seeing them for the first time, I noticed something odd about the figure. It took me a while before I realized what exactly had put me on edge. The figure made no sound. Not a little sound, none. Every shrub they brushed past and twig they stepped on were as quiet as corpses. It was as if somebody had muted the figure. Had I not seen them with my own eyes, I would have never thought anyone was there. How were they doing that? I remember thinking as my hands crushed into fists. They were just an amateur. I had ought to rip open their throat and hang them by their veins. And just when they were about to croak out their last pathetic breath, I had cut them down and, no, calm down and be professional. As talented as the figure was, they seemed to have trouble watching their back. I crept towards them with unrivaled skill and drew a syringe from my coat. In the past, I had strangled or even taken a knock in my prey unconscious. When such methods proved too messy or slow, I turned to chemical alternatives. I crept through the undergrowth until I was right behind the figure and then, in one swift motion, stabbed the needle into their back. It was a routine as I had practiced many times over and like then, it did not fail me. The figure started a wobble before they could even give any sign of alarm and collapsed without even a whimper. I caught them before they could fall and I slung them over my shoulder. We were far enough away from the hunter that my actions, as subtle as they were, remained undetected. The amateur was mine. A grin grew across my face as I rushed back through the woods. It had been some time since I had been so excited for a kill. The mere thought of them tied up in my workshop almost made me squeal with glee. With how impatient I was, it is amazing that I returned to my car without being caught. I zip-tied the figure's wrists and ankles before shoving them in the back and driving away, breaking every speeding law known to man. I drove not towards the town but deeper into the woods. I had learned through a great deal of trial and error that it is better to keep one's workshop far, far away. 
first, it was a storage container that some nosy attendant had looked inside. And then it was an old cabin that a teenager had broken into. Finally, I bought an old camping trailer from a stranger online and parked it out in the middle of nowhere. The inside was then covered in a fine layer of plastic wrap before I had moved in my tools. They hung from every wall, rows and rows of blades from delicate scalpels to meat cleavers. They were laid flat against the wrapping, the cold metal complementing the lifeless plastic. You never knew what each victim would require, so it was best to come prepared. It was there, my shrine of steel, that I drove the amateur to and here I would begin my work. I abandoned all pretenses of professionality once I had stepped inside. The amateur was not to be my victim, they were meant only to suffer. I tied them to a chair and ripped off their morbid attire, piece by tattered piece. Beneath was a hairless, detailed face, quite similar to my own. It was hard to tell if they were supposed to be a man or a woman, but it would not matter. The sedative would wear off soon after all, and then I could start having some fun. It had been a while since I had let myself indulge in my more unpolished impulses. I couldn't decide where to start. Perhaps I would peel their skin or cut an arm and feed it to them. Maybe I would go out their face and put them out in town square. A dire message to those who dared insult me. Yes, I thought to myself as I drew a blade from my workbench. My smile caught in the reflection. That would do just nicely. My wait was short-lived. Mere minutes after gathering my tools, the stranger began to stir. I had never regressed so much in a single instant. All at once, I was a child again just at the beginning of what would become my career. What fun times. I turned to face my plaything just as their eyes opened. I'm almost disappointed, I began. It was no trouble at all finding you. Were you even trying to hide? Did you think that I wouldn't find you? It wouldn't be the greatest insult that you made. I stepped forward and placed the knife edge up under the chin. Do you know who I am? It was another second before they fully returned to consciousness. My heart thundered in excitement. First would come the screaming, then the struggling, and finally the begging. Sweet, succulent pleas for me to leave unabated. I held my breath and waited. A minute passed and I still waited, and then a second, a third, and a fourth. I said, do you know who I am? I spat at the amateur, digging the knife deeper into their jaw but my demand fell on deaf ears. The figure stared at me, not with fear or alarm, but the wide, curious eyes of a child. My excitement turned to anger under that gaze and had dragged my dagger across their chin, a little motivation to help them play along. Yet they still did not scream. There was not one sign of pain anywhere on their person, even as red trickled down their chin. My anger turned to confusion and then to fear. What was happening? They hadn't even flinched. They had to be mocking me. They were in pain, any person would be, but they refused to let me enjoy it. Anger burned through my veins like hot oil. I gripped the knife so hard that my hand trembled and I clenched my teeth until they felt as though they would shatter. I raised my dagger high over my head and brought it straight down on the amateur's hand. It was only then that the figure reacted. 
They opened their mouth as if to scream, but what emerged was far worse. Their lips peeled back and didn't stop at their cheeks. Their mouth stretched further than it should have been possible, cutting up into the rest of their head until it looked as though it would be cut in two. What was under that grin wasn't flesh or bone left naked as the skin peeled away, but a face. My face to be specific. I stumbled back at the sight of me. I touched my own face as if to check if it was still there. The one that I stared into was more than just a replica, however. It was a copy more perfect than my own and behind it. Those barren eyes staring out. The sight overloaded my mind in a single instant. All at once, I was a child again, waiting for the thing in the dark to come and find me. Give it back, I remember saying. That's mine, my face. Give it back. I raised my danger once again, only for the figure to open their mouth again. Their head peeled back and this time, revealed my face from before my alterations. The bright hair, the chaotic arrangement of freckles, even that mole that I had cut off were all present. Every detail that I hated stared back at me while the eyes remained as simple as ever. I wanted to bring the knife down. I thought with all my might, trying to command my hand to rise, but I couldn't. It was my face. Before it, I was just the frail man who had been trapped behind it. It was the figure itself that had finally freed me. He opened his maw again and this time revealed a face that I didn't recognize. And this was followed by another and another and another. Faster and faster the mouse opened until not even faces were revealed anymore. There were only rows upon rows of teeth stacked atop each other and perpetually pulling back. By the time that I noticed one pulling back, 15 others had emerged from the maws and raced away. And it wasn't even a mouth anymore, but a mouth inside of a mouth inside of a mouth like a twisted nesting doll. It was maddening to witness. My eyes tried and failed to follow the pattern only to sting from the effort. My civility melted away in the face of such impossibility and was replaced with a single-minded drive to survive. Without thought, I ripped the dagger out of that redundant beast's hand with the intent of stabbing something more vital. However, the entire arm divided into two so while there was indeed a limb tied to the chair, another was caught on the blade and dragged out of the first. Another arm divided from the side of the one my blade was embedded in, and then lashed back to set knife. The hand wrapped around my wrist and began splitting, hands sliding out from each like cards from a deck until a net of fingers had spread over my arm. I was trapped with that thing mere inches away, folding and unfolding. I could not comprehend what I was seeing. Arms unfolded from arms in a swirling cascade of fractal limbs. Body parts split only to rejoin, twisting themselves into impossible shapes. Three arms sprung from the shoulder only to fuse at the rest, leaving a single hand to be shared between them. Five other limbs wrapped around each in a helix that ended in a flower of hands and fingers. It was a redundant monstrosity with too many limbs and not enough space. An impossible nightmare that would no longer stay in the dark. It pulled me close, its endless grip wrapped tighter on my arm, but I refused to be this demon's victim. My free hand fished through air until my fingers grazed one of the many blades still hanging from the walls. 
whichever knife it was. I quickly brought it down on the arms holding me and cleaved through meat and bone in one swift job. Newly freed, I leapt away from the living paradox. Already its endlessly unwinding figure had filled the space in my RV, blocking the door with a tangle of body parts. There was still, however, one way out. In the back of the trailer where the creature had trapped me, there was a larger window that was easy enough to break. Using the knives, I shattered the glass and scurried out into the forest. I planned to rush to my car, but the creature had the same exact thought. Limbs exploded out of the side of the trailer and stabbed into the vehicle like arrows. They took deep swipes, ripping the car apart piece by piece, until it was no more than a pile of scrap. The hands retracted and pulled the rest of the monstrosity out into the open, letting it unfurl to its true shape. It never seemed to settle. There is always something more to unpack, always a new limb to unveil. It rose to tower over the trees with a forest of shadows cast from it. Atop, the web of limbs rested a head made of mouth, and upon each tooth rested an eye. Eyes that one by one turned to look at me. I had never felt so small in my entire adult life. With the knife in my hand, I thought of cutting the creature apart, but this instantly was short-lived. I couldn't deny what the creature was, nor how powerless I was in the face of it. There was only one course of action left. I ran back into the woods like a mongrel with its tail tucked between its legs. Pathetic. The creature had no intention of letting me flee so easily. It surged forth in a cascade of hands and feet, weaving through the trees like a swarm of insects. Despite its unorthodox physique, the creature was quite nimble. Its body was liquid, I believe, and that it seemed to morph to fit between the trees. The sight was quite entrancing, if I do say so, whenever I had the time to sneak a peek but it was impossible to forget the danger that it posed. I saw that it was nimble, but not enough to catch me. Its body battered against the trees with every step and broke off a number of branches. If I could be so bold as to speculate on such an alien creature, I do not believe it was comfortable with changing its shape. Compacting such a mass must have been more difficult than unpacking it. Wherever shrinking was required, it was slowed just enough for me to keep my distance, though what little advantage that this gave me could not last. I wove and ducked around as many trees as I could, trying to slow the beast down, but the chase was stretching on for too long. My lungs slowly began to boil in my ribs, staining every breath with a torturous dryness. Muscles ignited all throughout me, most so in my legs who felt as though they were trying to destroy themselves. Already my pace had slowed and the forest's unforgiving terrain had offered no respite. I needed a plan, but how could I hope to best such a creature? The short answer was that I could not. As much as I longed to feel its flash beside my blade, it would always be my better. This meant the only option was to escape, but how? The answer came to me when the forest had suddenly ended. I came racing out onto a barren roadway bathed in moonlight and I stopped. Through the crackling of branches behind me, I heard a far more mundane sound. That of rushing water and a lot of it. 
I saw a bridge passing over a rather tumultuous part of the river just down the road. The water wasn't quite at rapid speeds, but they could certainly run faster than me. I only hoped that the demon was unable to swim. It burst through the tree line as I approached the bridge. I knew that it was a rest. The flat road wouldn't delay the creature as the woodland thicket had, but there was no other option. I ran with all my might, forgetting the pain in my legs and lungs, feet hammering against the asphalt. Behind came a thunderous choir of footsteps that shook the earth and stirred the air. The road quaked with such ferocity that it became hard to keep my footing. I could imagine quite well what would happen if that strength was turned on me. I had seen the bodies. The image was fresh in my mind as I ran, and it gave me just enough motivation to make it to the bridge. There was part of me relieved at the victory and so many more that wanted to grasp that feeling. Had I listened to them, I would not be here to recount this. I did not slow as I hiked up the bridge, although my progress had been accompanied by the creatures. It was close now, more so than I feared it ever would be. I could feel the wind generated by its swiping limbs brushing against my neck. Sometimes I swore there was even a claw plucking at the hairs, but it was close, so close. I could see the edge of the bridge and hear the roaring water below. Just a few more steps, that's all that it would take. Three more, two more, one, and then jump. I was in the air. I was free. All I had to do was let gravity take me, but the fall never came. My shirt snagged under my armpits as if something had snatched me up by the collar. A million fingers gripped the fabric and a shifting shadow passed over me. I didn't need to look up to see that smile unfurling ad infinity. Already I spied spindly hands reaching down to tear me apart. I had done most of the job for them after all, bringing myself right to the river for a prompt disposal. I could see it all play out before me. Tomorrow they would find my body washed up somewhere, and then the papers would come out saying, Red River Ripper claims the local doctor, and my body would be swept away to make room for more victims. It wouldn't just take my life, it would lose my name. Fear turned to rage as such a thought crossed my mind. I looked up at the creature and the impossible shapes that it took, my gaze alight with utter fury. I may not have killed it, but I could deny it one more victim and everything that was mine. I raised my knife one more time and in one quick slash, I severed the part of my shirt that it held onto. The other arm shot out to grab me, but the shock of my escape, it had delayed them long enough for the river to take me. The cold of the water struck me like lightning and after the initial shock, caused my focus to lapse. I had just enough strength to break the surface, not to breathe of course, but to see what may be following me. I spied the bridge, already a mere speck in the distance and atop it stood the creature, never moved to follow, even from the shoreline. It simply stood there holding the only piece of me that it would ever get. Screw you, I remember shouting, overcome by my feeling of triumph. I win, I win. It was a moment that I savor even to this day. Rare is that I find such ecstasy even from my victims. It was the greatest victory that I had ever known but it was not yet complete. 
I floated on the river for hours, letting it carry me far away from the creature until the sun finally rose. Only then, when I felt the monster could not find me, I drifted to the river's edge and I crawled ashore. I had been swept miles away to a town just south of my starting point. It was a tiny place as insignificant as the dirt blowing through its streets, but thankfully had a police station in town. I remember marching through the door, dragging river water with every step, finding the nearest officer and saying, Greetings, I am the Red River Ripper. Would you be so kind as to arrest me? They didn't believe me, of course, but it was easy to convince them. I outlined my crimes in exquisite details and took them out to see my trailer. Despite the damage, there was enough evidence within to finally arrest me. I pled guilty at the trial and was, to the shock of no one, sentenced to death. News spread fast to my crimes and the chilling efficiency with which they were undertaken. It was undeniable who I was and what I had done, and I couldn't have asked for more. But that wasn't the best part. The ten men whom the creature had killed were all attributed to me, and I was more than happy to accept as such an honor. I hope that creature, whatever it was, knows what I did in hopes that it hates me for it. Maybe it'll come for me. I see no reason why it cannot. Perhaps it'll disguise itself as one of the guards or even the inmates, perhaps no. Why be subtle when such a tremendous insult has been delivered after all? I'm a dead man already. I would at least want to die knowing how great of a wound I had delivered. It has not come, however. And the days have grown old and yet here I am, rotting away in a cell. I wonder if it does not care like I do. Perhaps it was simply an animal. Perhaps what it did was simply a means of covering its tracks, or even worse, an accident. I fear that it does not think of me. It is now six months since my conviction. The media attention my crimes assumed has died down. Now I doubt any of you know who the Red River Ripper even is. And this is why I write this now. I had made friends with a group of smugglers in my prison. If they're true to their word, they will find some way to make this message public. I don't know if I will live to see it published. Though the hope that someone may yet see this gives me a drive like nothing that I've ever known. To whomever finds this, I leave you with this. I have killed a great many people. For their sakes, do not forgive me or what I did. And if any of you are to run across a beast with bodies upon bodies coalescing within, kill it and in its last moments are reminded of me. Let the last thought on that monster's mind be me. I would like to take a minute to talk about this week's sponsor, Upside. Upside is an amazing free application that lets you earn cash back just for purchasing the things that you already do on a weekly basis, like gas or groceries. It's super simple to use and you'll quickly notice the benefits. My only regret is not downloading Upside sooner. Now with every purchase that I make, I'm earning cash back thanks to Upside. I may have mentioned this before, but there's an awesome little restaurant right by my house and... With the Upside app, I'm getting 7% cash back every time that I eat there. Not only is the food delicious, but I feel great about saving some money in the process. To get started, download the free Upside app. 
and use my promo code Mr. Creeps and get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Next, claim an offer for whatever you're buying on Upside. Check in at the business, pay as usual with a credit or debit card and get paid. In comparison to credit card rewards or loyalty programs, you can earn three times more cash back with Upside. Upside users are earning more than a million dollars every week. That's probably why they have a 4.8 star rating in the App Store. Download the free Upside app and use promo code MrCreeps to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code MrCreeps. There is something terrible hiding in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Written by Christian Wallace. My Frank, you good? I hadn't appreciated how different it would be under the water's surface. With so much trash overhead, the sun was barely visible, and my eyes struggled to adjust after the blinding light of the Pacific sun. It was nearly pitch black and the water was cloudy from all the sediment and microplastics. It reduced visibility to a few meters, and Adam and Hannah looked like little more than blurry shapes in the dark, even though they were no more than a few feet away. Yeah, I'm okay. It was second nature to keep my mouth shut underwater, and I knew that it was going to be some time before I got used to talking in these new diving masks. Adam and Hannah nodded at each other, and both turned their lights on. To my relief, visibility improved enough that if I squinted, I could see who was who based on either a slimmer muscular silhouette. Hannah gently glided over and tapped her helmet to remind me to turn my own light on. I fumbled for the switch and it lit up revealing her blue eyes smiling at me as she floated a few feet away. I caught a glimpse of her smiling blue eyes and was reminded of why Discovery executives were scouting her as a potential TV presenter. Much better. She laughed as she checked that I was securely attached to the dive line. You see, it's not so bad, is it? Is he good? Adam asked her, and she gave the okay sign to let him know that I was. Still, Adam looked me up and down and asked directly, Frank, you good buddy? I managed a gentle nod. We need to be careful, Adam said as he floated over and took hold of where my suit clipped onto the dive line. The masts will let us talk to each other and the ship while underwater, but it won't give the sound any sense of distance or direction so it can be pretty disorienting. Now listen to me carefully. Do not unclip yourself from the dive line. If you break the surface, there'll be about a foot of trash at least, blocking your view for 360 degrees. You won't be able to see the ship, and you do not want to get lost out here. Only the last few words got through my mental fog. My heart was racing and even under the wetsuit, I could feel shivers crawling across my skin. We floated in a cloud of suffocating plastic snow, lit only by the occasional slither of sun, as the sea parted the trash overhead. I could feel the confusing mix of claustrophobia and agoraphobia. We were trapped between the vast open void below and the ceiling of trash overhead. My movement was sluggish and all around me the hazy abyss flickered with constant motion that I tried to track and make sense of. These were warm waters, I thought, 
There had to be life all around us, and surely it couldn't all be friendly. Jellyfish, sharks, parasites galore. The sea was filled with all sorts of nasty stuff, and it had to be out there somewhere, aware of us. As if it was summoned by my anxious thoughts, something strange caught my eye, floating far away at the very limits of my vision. A flicker of motion, shifting patterns of light that my brain correlated with or without sufficient evidence. By the time that I turned to look fully in its direction, it had already gone. The only sense that it left me with was one of great size. Frank? Adam poked me with a finger. Dude, are you okay? I turned to see the other two divers staring at me. I'm good, I said. Let's get this over with. It was with great relief that I found my hand touching the side of the ship once more. It had been an hour since we had left and I had made sure to point and shoot at every little thing that Hannah told me to. Now it was over and I couldn't wait to get out of that dang water. My anxiety had caused me to babble on endlessly about random crap. And more than once Hannah had basically told me to shut up. But after a few minutes I would start up again, yammering on about any old thing just to keep my mind off my fear. It didn't help that I kept seeing something lingering at the very edge of my sight, circling at a distance while refusing to solidify into anything that I might recognize. Adam noticed that I was distracted, and he gave my arm a tap to get my attention. Frank, you're last because the equipment is so heavy. That way I can help the others bring you up. Oh crap, really? I groaned. You can take it off, he replied. We'll take you up separately to the equipment. I clutched at my cameras protectively. They were how I made a living, and I wasn't letting them go easily. Uh, no, I'll be last, I said. Right, well, don't go wandering off, he said, and both he and Anna laughed. I chuckled as well, but I grabbed the dive line and checked that I was still attached to the ship just in case. By the time that I looked back, Adam was already being lifted out of the water by three pairs of eager hands. Hannah stayed beside me until Adam gave us the okay, and just as quickly she reached her arms into the air and left the water. Holy crap, I heard Adam's voice in my ear. I swiveled expecting him to be right beside me, but he must have left his helmet on, and I could hear him talking to the others on deck. What the heck is that? Somebody cried in the background but there was a clamor of voices and gasps that made my blood run cold. Helpless and paranoid that they were talking about something in the water, I turned sluggishly to catch sight of what might be behind me, but there was only a wall of trash one foot high. It's no way, not out this, here, doesn't belong. I pushed myself closer to the ship and reached up, but no one was there to grab me. I started to slap the hull, desperate to get their attention, but no one was coming. Whatever they had seen, I had fallen to the bottom of the priority list. When I screamed into my radio, I was only one of a dozen people shouting for attention. Even worse, I caught a snippet of what Adam was saying. Shark. Shark? I cried into my headset. Guys, did you just say a shark? I pushed my back to the ship and ducked underwater to see what might be nearby. There was only open water stretching off into a deep, dark blue beneath my feet. 
For a second there, I lost myself staring into those abyssal waters until a flicker of movement caught my attention and I scanned the water around me. That was when something strange emerged out of the murky distance. A torpedo-shaped monstrosity far larger than anything else I had expected. Whatever this thing was, it was the size of a school bus with fins as large as my chest. Frank, it's a whale shark. Hannah cried joyfully into my headset. Oh my god, that's incredible. They never come out this far. What the heck is a whale shark? I whispered, terrified of attracting this leviathan's attention. It's harmless, Hannah replied. Utterly harmless, I promise you, Frank, it won't hurt you. That's incredible. She was giggling. It's a filter feeder, Adam interjected. Curious, but friendly. Frank, it won't hurt you. It might even play with you. Hannah was babbling on in the background. Whether she was right about the gentle giant or not, it didn't matter to me. The whale shark disappeared into the filthy water, and my skin crawled with the knowledge that it might still be circling close by. Having had enough, I threw my hands above the surface of the water and I screamed, Get me the heck out of this water, now. Adam and someone else must have registered the sheer panic in my voice because I was suddenly being lifted up. I had my hand on the bottom lip of the deck when Adam's eyes went wide, and the crew member beside him shrieked, dropped my arm, and began to scramble backwards. Panicking, I snatched at Adam with both arms and held on, forcing him to use all his strength just to stop the two of us from pitching into the water. Just as I thought that we would lose the fight, I suddenly started to rise without effort. A current from below started to buoy me upwards, and I caught a glimpse of a mouth wider than a door lurching up towards me. I became so afraid that my whole body went numb and for a few brief seconds. It felt as if I was watching the whole scene from outside my own body. I noted the detached horror that the shark's rubbery mouth had already reached my waist. But to Adam's credit, he kept a grip on me and took advantage of the shark's upward momentum to pull me the rest of the way before that grotesque yawning mouth could snap shut around me. I hit the deck in a state of pure shock and looked down expecting to see my legs to be torn to shreds. Did it, did it bite me? I stammered. They have no teeth, Hannah explained. They can't. It couldn't possibly have mistaken you for food. It must have been an accident. It's dead. Adam was leaning over the rails and shaking his head. I struggled to process what he had said, so I dragged myself up and flopped over to the edge where the monster lay on its side. In daylight, I could see that it was bloated, broken skin running along its flanks. Colorless fat fell out of open wounds like clumps of sofa-stuffing and the eye facing us was burst and empty. In one or two places, I could clearly make out bone. What the heck? I muttered. As if it was tired of being watched, the whale shark twitched and its body fell lifelessly below the water. The suction of its descent pulled the floating trash back over like a blanket, and within seconds there was no sign that there had even been anything there. Why aren't there any gulls? Alec was the captain of the vessel and an otherwise taciturn man who rarely spoke to the documentary crew. It was plain as day that he particularly disliked the scientists who filled the lower decks with endless equipment and chatty clicks. But I guess that he must have found the filming crew a little easier to speak to, 
since he had asked me for a light once or twice and had now sought me out on deck to ask a question. What do you mean? Every time we pass this way, the sky is filled with the things. He replied as he scanned the horizon. It's a floating garbage dump, he added. But now, where are the gulls? It's never like this. Never quiet. I took a moment to listen to the gentle serration of whispering plastic caught in the tropical waves. We must be due to leave soon? I asked and he nodded. Thank God for that, I added. A few seconds of silence as he smoked his cigarette. I took a look at the footage that you brought up, he said. Still not sure what that shark was doing. Hannah says the animal must have been confused, I replied. Blind, didn't even know that I was in the water. Right. I could tell by Alex's vacant gaze that he didn't think much of that. Only thing is, I stayed up last night going over that footage. Not just the stuff that you shot deliberately, but the GoPro footage from the cameras that you had strapped to your back. And... That thing had been following you since you got in the water. What do you think that means? It means that it was hunting you, he replied. I thought back to the endless glimpses of a strange shape passing forever in the distance. Hannah says that they're not predators. They aren't, he confirmed. Even if it got you, it couldn't have done anything with you. It's a filter feeder. It eats plankton. Best it could have done was drown you out of spite. I took a deep breath and I appreciated the feeling of being alive and dry on the ship. Alec looked ready to say something when we were both distracted by the sound of flapping wings as a gull descended onto the floating island. I chuckled and began to say, Signs of life at... When a quiet splash interrupted and the gull was sucked below the surface and didn't even have time to struggle... Alec and I remained silent, rooted to the spot until the ship's engine started, and the island began to recede slowly but surely into the distance. How far did we travel? I asked. 80 to 100 miles depending on the tides, Adam replied, looking at me like he hoped that I might have some kind of explanation. I didn't, and we both turned to Alec and Hannah as they emerged from the cabin and began to address the crowd on deck. Everybody had gathered that morning after some of the crew had rung the alarm. Since then, every check you could imagine had been run. Engines, GPS, radio. Some people suggested that we simply hadn't moved. Others were adamant that they knew the feel of the ship underway. But what explanation was there? The garbage patch had followed us. It has to be the currents. Adam muttered quietly as Hannah cupped her hands around her mouth and called for attention. Everyone, she cried. As you know, we appear to not have moved. This has raised some understandable concerns. But I've spoken to the Coast Guard and after checking multiple sources, I can confirm that we really have traveled closer to shore. We're on our way home. There was an audible sense of relief that carried through the crowd. Unfortunately, Alec added, the tides have caused the patch to follow us and as is clear... It has even overtaken us. We don't have an easy route in or out of the island. We can still stick to our current heading, but with so much debris, nets especially, 
I made the decision to travel at quarter speed. If something gets caught in the propeller, I want to limit the damage. Uh, we're looking at least a week before we get home, Hannah said, clarifying the captain's words. As one, the crowd began to cry out in anger and frustration. Thinking of taking a dip, Alec sidled up to me as I smoked a cigarette in the dock. It was quiet out with most people having slunk away to their cabin so they could mope in private. But I found it uncomfortable down there. My cabin was below the waterline and the sounds that I had been hearing had kept me up. Strange scratches, little taps. They were probably nothing, but that didn't stop the nightmares. I'd rather run a marathon with my butt cheeks sewn shut, I replied. Alec burst out laughing. I don't blame you, he said once the laughter had died down. I haven't seen anything like that in my life. Not just the footage, but the shark afterwards. Half its guts were ripped out. How could it even swim? It's like it was. Whatever point Alec was going to make was interrupted by the sound of something heavy and wet hitting the deck. When we turned, we saw a seagull, mutilated and bloody, feathers strewn around the point of impact. Together, we both looked up into the cloudless night sky. Where the heck did that come from? I snapped and there hadn't been a sound. Not the calling of gulls or the flapping of wings. We walked over to the bird and were struck by the god-awful smell and the harrowing sight of bone and glistening muscle. Pale yellow fluid oozed out of every open wound, and the bird's anatomy had been ruined by the impact to the point, where I wasn't sure what was meant to be a wing or a head, or a tail or a torso. I've seen roadkill in better shape, I said. I don't understand what happened to it. Alec replied as he leaned in, one hand clamped over his mouth and nose. It looks like it encountered something corrosive, a toxic chemical. The bird stood up. With what must have been a lot of effort, it tried to flap its way towards Alec who cried out and stumbled backwards. Both of us swore and I even burst into a nervous laughter, which I often do when I'm scared. How is it still alive? Alec had asked. I squinted at the bird as it continued the torturous journey towards us. It isn't, I said. I mean it clearly. That's its brainstem, I said while pointing towards what looked like a pale white centipede dangling loosely to one side. And where's the beak? The thing doesn't have a head. No brain, no life. The bird hopped another step closer. It has to be alive. Alec cried while pointing to the bustling pile of flesh and feathers. It's coming towards us for Pete's sake. Both of us took a step to the right and the bird turned to keep us in its path. Nope, I said with a quick shake of the head. Nope, not doing this. I stepped forward and kicked the bird as hard as I could, sending it whistling through the air like a shuttlecock before it plunked into the water. Alec and I stared at each other and after a moment's tension began to laugh. It felt like the only sane reaction to such a nightmarish encounter, especially since no real danger had been involved. I assumed that there had to be a sensible explanation. Like Alec said, a toxic spill perhaps, or some exotic disease. But in the moment it felt good to just laugh after so much time spent afraid. 
We were still laughing when the ship's engine cut out and the lights failed. It was clear in the morning light that the garbage around the ship was getting thicker. I stared at it through the windows and tried to suppress the strange notion that it didn't want to let us go. The engine room's a complete mess. Alec hissed as he stepped into the bridge where Hannah, Adam, and I waited. I've got some good guys on it, but the propeller didn't just stop. It was like something yanked the dang thing halfway off the ship. Ruined everything down there. Best that we can do is patch up the leaks. Any chance of repairing it and getting it going again? Hannah asked. Not in the water, he replied. I've asked the Coast Guard to send for a tow. How long will that take? I asked. A day at the most. Three days later and people were getting anxious. The radio calls between Alec and the Coast Guard were getting terse. I had passed the bridge late one night and heard Alec crying into the headset. What do you mean you can't see us? We're right here. We're in the water. We've sent up flares, giving you coordinates. Read the stars, everything. We've done everything that you've asked. This isn't some life raft in the middle of nowhere. It's a ship with 30 people on it. It's bigger than most houses, for crying out loud. A day's journey and we'd be able to see the coast. How can you not find us? In the end, it was Hannah's idea to try the dinghy and head for shore that way. It couldn't hold more than two people, but it would let someone get helped and lead the Coast Guard back. Will this thing be able to push through all the garbage? I asked as Hannah climbed the ladder and stepped onto the rubber floor below. That's not far to shore, she replied, and we have poles to help us maneuver around the worst of it. And you got plenty of food, she chuckled. Frank, we won't be gone long enough to need food. None of this is normal, I said while looking out at the rolling hills of rubbish. You should be prepared for the worst. You know some of this stuff is thick enough to walk on, she replied. And maybe we'll be able to hike part of the way. She said it as a joke to keep me from harping on about how bad an idea this all was. But it only made me feel worse. Just don't get in the water, I replied. It's, I don't know, just don't. I won't. She smiled just as her companion turned up and began to climb down. I didn't know the woman well, but from what I understood, she was basically Hannah's makeup woman and closest friend. Jen, I think her name was. She saw the look on my face and reached over and squeezed Hannah's hand. Don't worry, Jen told me. I'll take good care of her. But the look on her face spoke volumes about the fear that she was trying to hide. Everything ready? Alec asked as he appeared beside me. We only have one more of these. He told Hannah as he pointed to the dinghy. So please look after it. And please come back. One by one, the others came by and waved goodbye to the pair of women who all our hopes were resting on. Once the final farewells were said, Alec helped launch the dinghy with a barge pole as Hannah started the onboard motor and Jen began to pedal. Slowly, the distance between us and them grew, and the little canal they had carved in the garbage patch was filled by the currents. They were about a hundred yards away from us when they both turned, smiled, and waved and we all returned the gesture, and then the dinghy was pulled below. Screams, cries, a loud splash, and before any of us could even begin to react, 
The garbage had floated back and to cover the space where they had once floated. You can't seriously be thinking of this. I cried as Adam jumped into the spare dinghy and prepped the motor. It's not far. He said climbing back aboard to grab a spare jacket and a lifesaver. We need to check. There's something in the water, I told him. It's just going to do the same thing to you that it did to them. We don't know that, he replied. Adam, Alex said, and something in the captain's voice stopped both of our bickering. This isn't a good situation to be stuck in, and I don't think this kind of impulsive response is wise. Maybe there is something in the water. What? he stuttered. Because of the shark. You were wrong. It wasn't hunting us. That's like saying you're being stalked by a freaking cow. It's a filter feeder. And Hannah's dinghy must have been broken or punctured maybe. Or it hit something below the water. A rock, I don't know. But they need help and I can't seriously believe the two of you are suggesting that we just sit there and let our friends drown. Adam, I began to say, No, if you won't come with me, that's fine, but my decision is made. He turned and threw the lifesaver into the dinghy where it landed with a loud thud. Not a second after it had stopped moving. The entire little boat was torn down into the water with such astonishing force that it sent a spray of water 10 and 20 feet high. Once the water had settled, all three of us were left staring into the open space in the trash that had been left by the dinghy, and I caught a glimpse of something pale and reddish sweeping past, a long and thin limb covered in fleshy barbs. An eye, just as swift, also flashed by. The sense of looking at an alien life form was unmistakable. Its skin, a rugose pattern of wrinkled flesh, a single black orb of an eye glaring back at us from a torpedo-shaped head and opposite it, an empty socket where another eye should be. Slowly, the trash bobbed back into place and their view of what lay below is hidden. Was that a freaking squid? Adam stuttered, his skin paper white. Both Adam and Alec had spent the best part of eight hours on the radio with the Coast Guard, but we had no luck. The best estimate anyone had was that we were trapped in the garbage patch and it was being carried away by the current so that our position and heading were almost impossible to discern. You would think the GPS would solve that problem, but for the life of us, no set of coordinates we gave ever seemed to help. The Coast Guard were often adamant that they were flying overhead, but whenever we looked there, there was nothing to see or hear. People were starting to get hungry. We had a decent supply of food, but we would have to start rationing. Slowly, layer by layer, it felt as if the journey was descending into a life or death struggle. And yet I found it hard to take seriously. The ship was huge and luxurious. Many crew whittled the day away in the gym or watching satellite TV. But time was limited and we all knew that. Still, I stood on deck and watched the garbage. Unable to shake the feeling that something was just out of sight and watching me back. From behind, I heard someone approach. I figured that it was Alec come out once again to steal a cigarette. I kept my eyes on the water and I called out. I wouldn't bother. I'm out. And there was no reply. My smile faded and the hair on my neck raised as I registered a wet, fetid stench and heavy labored breathing completely unlike Alex.
or anyone's really. This was the wet gurgle of someone whose lungs were filled with fluid, and I turned, not sure what to expect, but already terrified beyond measure. It was Hannah. Don't. Alec reached out with his arm to stop Adam from touching her. The gesture worked. Adam withdrew his hand, and it wasn't hard to see why. Hannah was missing the back of her skull, along with the bottom half of her jaw. But she stood on deck, clothes torn and dripping. Her skin, a pallid, greenish-blue. A standing corpse. A walking nightmare. Her eyes were cloudy, but they often fixed the nearest person to talk, which I found to be the most frightening thing of all. She was in there somewhere, or at least something wise. She looked like she had been taken apart and put back together again and somehow. She still moved, heard, saw. Her nervous system was still firing away, sending signals to a body that should not have been able to respond. Minutes passed and Adam swallowed his fear. He took off his jacket, ignored Alex's weak plea to be careful, and stepped close enough to drape it over Hannah's shoulders. Hannah, are you okay? Where's Jen? Those cloudy eyes turned to him, but her head and body didn't move. I don't think we can expect much of an answer, I said. Hannah, Adam asked, but she only stared and I became slowly convinced that there was nothing of Hannah left inside that body. Those eyes watched us, sure, but I don't think the images were being relayed back to a woman that we once knew. Instead, I felt another intelligence behind them. Something malignant, curious, and dangerous, I don't know. For now, it felt content to watch us, and that more than anything, it worried me. She won't move, Adam said as he tried to turn her shoulders away and lead her indoors. She merely shrugged his hands off and continued to flick her gaze from each of us to the other. I pointed to the blood on the deck. It was already coagulated, the texture of rice pudding. No doctor's going to fix that, I said. Just leave her there, maybe tired to the gunwale, first with a length of rope. I don't think we need her roaming around the place. Hannah was gone in the morning. The rope that we had tied her to was overboard and when we pulled it up, we found it soaked in a foul-smelling liquid. Even worse, despite briefing everyone and making it clear to stay away, we were down a person on the headcount. I wasn't sure how, but I figured the two events were related, and the thought made me shudder. God help the poor soul that she had taken down there with her. By now, the atmosphere had taken a dark turn. One by one, everybody had come along, usually in groups of two or three and in bright daylight, to gawk at Hannah during the time that she had been aboard. The effect was haunting, not just the sight of a walking corpse, no. It was the intelligence behind her eyes that was really unsettling. I got the distinct sense that she was watching us, counting our number and gathering a sense of who and what we were. I don't think that I was the only one to feel that way. After discovering someone was missing the next day, everybody pretty much locked themselves in their cabins and stayed out of sight, and I couldn't blame them. Only Adam, Alec, and I stuck around on deck and even that was only to try and find a way out of this mess. Not that the others were idle. 
At least one group of crew had banded together and were trying to make a raft out of a spare material in the hold below. Another were working on their computers to try and get the Coast Guard to us. Meanwhile, the actual sailing crew had fallen in line under one of the engineers and were working furiously to get the engine back online. My plan was a little simpler. This isn't safe, Adam said as I threw another lump of wood onto the pile of timber that floated below. Nope, I replied, it isn't. But that didn't stop him handing me another piece that we had torn from the ship's interior. Alex soon appeared, hauling another table from the canteen. I'll break this up, he said. Adam, you get the fuel. It wasn't easy, he replied. The guys down below didn't want to let it go. They were convinced that they'll have us up and running in no time. We don't need all of our supply to get to shore, Alex said. If they succeed, great. But I would like to give this plan a go anyway. The Coast Guard know what to look for, I asked, and he nodded. A big plume of smoke. Does it look big enough? I asked after we had finished throwing the table one leg at a time onto the pile below. If the plastic catches then we should be good right, Adam said. And it doesn't have to be big, just smoky. Alex surveyed the wood and shrugged. I had managed to hook a bundle of floating tires and nets and I was using that as the base of the bonfire. There's a serious risk that we could set this whole patch alight, Adam said. Us included. More the smoke could suffocate us all, like being trapped in a wildfire. I added, and both Adam and Alec looked at me with frustration. It was your plan, Adam grumbled. I'm just pointing out that this isn't a safe plan. It's just a plan. And I don't think that we're at a huge risk. The wood will burn, but everything below, it might char and bubble. Might go up a little, but it's also soaked in water. I don't think this whole thing is going to go up in flame. I mean, it's been here for years. If it could burn, wouldn't somebody have just done that already? Just torch the whole patch. If not to get rid of it, then just for fun. Alex sighed. He's right, he replied. I don't think we need... What? I stopped what I was doing, pouring gasoline haphazardly over the side of the ship, and I turned to look in the direction of Alec and Adam's gaze. They were staring at the strangest thing that I had ever seen. It looked like a blimp almost but floating in the water. A large round object with a ribbed, styrated surface. Its skin was pale blue but the space between each was blood red. It made me think of some jellyfish maybe, like a man of war. Only this thing was the size of a small house. It's definitely coming towards us, right? Adam asked and Alec nodded. I think I sensed the danger early on. In fact, the others probably did too. But we were baffled by this strange shape. It looked like nothing that I had ever seen before. And as it came closer, it carried with it the most god-awful sound that you could ever imagine. It was like metal struggling to hold up some impossible weight. A long, drawn-out keening wail that was so loud. It drew everyone out of the hold and onto the deck where all of us... A crowd of 30 stared in disbelief. By the time that it was close enough to bump against the ship's hull, the sound that it emitted was deafening. Alec asked me a question, but I couldn't hear him. So he nudged my arm and pointed at the water below. 
There I saw that the floating object took on a slightly more recognizable shape. A wrinkled eye blinked. A fin gently stroked through the water. It was a whale and I suddenly remembered tales of how their floating carcasses could inflate to impossible size and pose serious risks to passing ships. All that pressure and rancid meat. A pressure cooker of disease that could send lumps of meat as big as a man hurling for hundreds of meters. I ran and hit the floor just as it went off. I lifted my head to pure carnage. A crowd of 30 people were screaming, everyone soaked, top to bottom in blood and rotten fat. White irises glared back at me from faces painted crimson, and dozens were on their knees coughing and retching. But it wasn't just disgust. Something else was going on. Adam crawled towards me, screaming in pain. Get it off! He shrieked as he tried to pull his top off. Get it the heck off me! I rushed over and helped him pull the t-shirt off, only to reveal something crawling over his skin. It too was soaked in blood and hard to see, with frighteningly long legs with a small disc-shaped body. It skittered out of sight at lightning speed, but it wasn't alone. Dozens of them covered Adam's skin and they were biting and latching onto his flesh, wrapping legs around his torso like harvest men against tree bark. I dug my fingers under one set of spidery legs and tore them away, but it wasn't enough. I saw at least three of them burrow into his flesh and disappear. I looked around and slowly appreciated the scale of what had just happened. The deck was covered in hundreds of these monstrous sea spiders, and they were making short work of everybody left alive after the explosion. Already, there were at least 10 people convulsing on the floor as these plate-sized arachnids tore through their insides. This wasn't my proudest moment, but even as Adam screamed and begged for help, I knew there was nothing that I could do except run. So I turned, ready to flee, and saw Alec stood before me, soaked in it too. He held a can of gasoline over his head, its contents already dripping through his hair and trickling across the deck. It's inside me. He whimpered as his thumb rubbed the flint of a lighter over and over, trying desperately to get it to ignite. I looked down and saw gasoline spreading amongst my feet. Alec, I said. Alec, what? The lighter caught. For a flash, there was only a tiny flame hovering over his thumb, and then it finally found the fuel and it was all let loose. The fire was virulent. People, already soaked in blubber, became living candles that thrashed and ran across the ship, fleeing deeper into the decks below and spreading the flames faster than I thought possible. I was forced to flee to the stern of the ship where the air was clearer. Once there, I gripped the railing and I turned to face the fire. People still screamed, but as these seconds ticked on, the agonized cries of those still alive began to thin out, as one by one they died out of my sight. My heart sank. It was clear that there was no saving the ship. We had life rafts, but they were at the bow and already lost. The last thing that I wanted to do was jump into the water, but it was starting to look like it was either that or burn alive. I was genuinely contemplating which of the two deaths that I would rather have, when I heard a noise that I had spent days hoping to hear. For a moment I thought that it might be a cruel trick of mind but it grew with each passing second until I was finally sure of what it was. A helicopter. 
It circled the ship at some distance, unable to come closer because of the smoke. I could already feel the heat at my back as the fire caught up with me, and I looked down below convinced that swimming was not an option. But what if no one saw me, I thought. The smoke was growing thicker with every second. What if they left thinking they couldn't help anyone? Man, I had joked about that in places. The island was thick enough to support a person's weight. I looked at the floating garbage below and decided that I had to at least try, especially with help so close by. I also needed a way to get noticed, and thankfully a first aid box in the nearby wall contained a flare that I grabbed and stuffed into my pocket. I climbed the rail and awkwardly lowered myself down as far as I could, until I finally let go and dropped the rest of the way. My feet hit something solid enough to stop myself instantly from being submerged but it quickly began to sink into the water. Before I got further than my knees, I jumped onto another clump of floating plastic, and that too began to sink. I quickly realized that if I stayed in one place for even a second, my weight would overcome the islands of buoyancy. I couldn't risk the water, not with what I knew. And so I ran. I picked footholds at random and sometimes not very well. At one point, my heel struck the edge of some bundled-up net filled with buckets, only for the whole thing to rotate and nearly pitch me into the water. But I had enough forward momentum to be sent hurtling onto what might have been once the fiberglass prow of an old speedboat. I don't know how far I got before I struck the flare and began to scream. I couldn't turn or stop, not even for an instant. If I did, I would sink and drown, or maybe worse. All I could do was keep going one foot at a time, and just pray that the helicopter saw me as I held a glowing fireball over my head at arm's length. Eventually, my luck had run out though. The floating island was a piecemeal jumble of old trolley nets and dumped plastic, and I stepped onto what looked like a fairly buoyant clump of bottles and nylon rope, expecting it to hold me up only for it to give in instantly. I hit the water face first and the flare went out. I tried to kick to free my leg and keep going, but it was useless. All hope drained. I hadn't had time to hold my breath and already my lungs were burning. Unable to help myself, I looked down. I saw shapes floating in the water, a vertical at rest. People, whales, sharks, squid, turtles, lifeless things that lay in wait part of something larger, I'm sure. Below them, a single shadow too dark to simply be the abyss. Overhead, the water churned, the trash parted, and a ray of light flashed past me. It was weak, but it landed on whatever was below. It was big, too big to make sense of, too big to give a shape. In the end, I think that I saw only a part of it. An eye, nothing more. It saw me... I know because one of the floating animals, a squid, broke out of its trance and began to glide towards me. It too was a broken, mutilated thing kept alive, an undead monstrosity enslaved by whatever lay below. I suddenly began to regret not burning to death. The squid was a hundred yards out when something plopped into the water below me. I looked up into the blinding sun and saw a ladder within arm's reach. I grabbed it, and with a mind that no longer felt whole, I quickly climbed out of the water. I wouldn't bother. 
The man said as he sat down beside me on the park bench. I snatched my phone into my pocket, irritated that someone had clearly been reading over my shoulder. They won't publish anything in the news. They didn't when I tried. Email them all you want, it doesn't matter. The only look that I had was online, and I think that's because most people assumed my story was fiction. Thanks for the advice, I grumbled. And whether I believed him or not, I found myself hastily deleting the email that I was writing. It had been a month since my rescue, and I had already sent dozens to the big news sites. No one responded, and there was no reason to believe the twelfth email would magically work. Anyway, he said, I'm Steven. I'm a scientist who used to specialize in robotics. What do you specialize in now? I asked. I think, he said, firmly planting the emphasis on the last word. I specialize in whatever it was you saw down in the water. I hope I'm wrong, of course, because what I specialize in and what I saw, the last time I saw it, it was trapped. But if you saw it too out in the open water, well, I don't even want to think about what that means. I'm a retired major crimes detective and I've seen true evil three times in my career. Written by 10 Minute Horror. All three were in the last decade of my career. I spent 12 years walking the beat before I had the opportunity to step in and assist a detective into CSI on a double homicide. Through my numerous connections from years on the streets, we managed to get several leads that led to the arrests of the guilty. I moved out of patrol and spent a decade investigating more explicit crimes, arsons and armed robberies as well. I took advanced training seminars and workshops, studying past cases and offender modalities. I worked with the drug squads on serious assaults and the occasional murder before finding myself stepping in for a retiring detective. I was familiar with his partner, Connolly, and we became a good team. I bring this all up to emphasize that I have seen horrific stuff in my 33 years on the forest, images that I'll never shake, people who still haunt my dreams. I can honestly say that most of the criminals that I put away haven't been evil. They've all been motivated by something, however benign, to commit their acts. And then there are some that are on the fence, the ones that take violent crimes further than would typically be the case. And then there are those that dream up horrific atrocities to be inflicted on the world around them, because why not? Patty Wilson fell somewhere beyond the shades of your typical serial killer. She was the first person that I encountered on the job who I could reliably say had true evil in her. Patty was an RN that had moved into the OBGYN and birthing clinic in one of these cities' lower-class neighborhoods. This particular clinic had a terrible miscarriage and stillbirth rate, but the numbers were fudged and kept hidden. Eventually, people in the neighborhood started talking and word got out on how many deaths there were. Our station was contacted and normally that type of thing would land on another desk, but we were short-staffed, so Connolly and I were brought in. Our investigation led us to Patty, and we found that in her 23 years at the clinic, 
there had been over 2,000 miscarriages. She had been giving a chemical cocktail to the expected mothers, claiming that it would help with sleep, but instead it gradually killed the baby as it grew. We had all discovered that after several dozen healthy births, Patty would take the baby away to be cleaned up, but would return with the horrible news that the baby had died shortly after being delivered. Our investigations into that didn't lead anywhere concrete, but one of the threads that we were pulling on led us to believe that Patty had been lying to the mothers, telling them that their baby had died, when in fact the baby was healthy but was shipped off to the highest bidder. A live baby on the black market could fetch a tidy sum, whether for organ harvesting, stem cells, or something more deviant and horrific. When we believe that it was motivated as almost all the miscarriages and stillbirths occurred exclusively with black parents, but Patty denied it all. I remember watching Patty on our first interview with her. Her face was normal and moved expressively as she spoke and answered our questions, but her eyes didn't. They were empty and black holes and the longer that you stared into them, the more uncomfortable you became. Even after the trial which had had her served with multiple life sentences, Patty denied any wrongdoing. The next case where I witnessed true evil, it fractured into an investigation involving multiple events. Connolly and I were called in to investigate an attack on a beach volleyball tournament. On the city's largest beach, there was a national tournament with over 300 teams playing on 50 courts over the course of the weekend. The ages were from 12 to 65, and they were both men and women. During morning warm-ups before the first game of the first day, one scream turned into two screams, which turned into a hundred screams. Over one-third of the players needed immediate medical attention. Their feet, ankles, knees, thighs, hips, and stomachs, and in some cases up to their shoulders and face, were covered in deep, gushing cuts. Someone had gone to the beach the night before the tournament and brought hundreds of small flat pieces of wood with blades sticking up from the centers in an upside down capital T shape. The wood was dug into the sand with the blades a sharp end pointed upward and hidden just under the surface so nobody could see them. It had to take hours to set up. There were no deaths but the damage that was caused resulted in hundreds of injuries and several dozen athletic young adults with a sliced Achilles tendons and a dwindling future in sports. As with every investigation, we started off at the crime scene and worked our way outwards in tight, concentric circles. While the CSIs were combing the beach, Connolly and I were interviewing the people who ran the tournament, looking for any enemies or people who might want to target them and this tournament in particular. But those led nowhere. Sadly, the CSIs fared no better. The entire crime scene was awash. There were so many footprints and shoe and sandal prints in the sand that it was impossible to search for tracks. And the actual razor blades and pieces of wood had been doused in bleach before being placed in their small dugouts. There were no security cameras on the beach and the lone one that was in the parking lot didn't capture any cars between the hours of midnight and 7am. Our phones were ringing off the hook with tips but there were no real leads. After a month, we were nowhere in the investigation. And then a new investigation came in and our hamstrung department got even tighter. Connolly and I took it on as well. At a senior's home along the city's waterfront, 
A fire had started in the basement because of the accelerants used. It quickly overtook the first two floors. From there, the rest of the eight-story building went up. Twenty-two residents and nine staff died in the fire, all from smoke inhalation. We scoured the undamaged security footage, but again found no suspects around the parking lots or the front entrances. The footage from the rear of the building was destroyed, so we couldn't really check it. And then a third investigation dropped onto our desk. This time, there was a mass poisoning in a junior high school cafeteria. There were 23 deaths, 15 of which were students and over 100 severe injuries. Our investigation had showed that someone had stealthily broken into the school overnight and poisoned every piece of food in the cafeteria's stockroom, fridge, and freezer with arsenic. It was a miracle that more people didn't die. All the school's exterior cameras were working, and after scouring them for clues, we finally found one at the back door. The footage captured as somebody dressed in all black with a hood and ski mask over their face. He had used a small set of lockpicking tools to enter the back door, which led into the kitchen. He used the same door to exit, and he ran off across the soccer field towards the water. And everything made sense. The beach volleyball courts, the seniors' home, and now this junior high. They all backed out out of the water. The school itself had taken advantage of that fact by introducing students to rowing, kayaking, sailing, swimming, and other sports and activities on the open sea. And the seniors' home was partially marketed based on its incredible view of the water. We hypothesized that three mass crimes were committed by the same individual. We marked all three locations on a map and scanned down the coast for all the marinas and harbors. And then we went back through all the routes and picked out various waterfront spots that we knew would have footage of at their exteriors. Using the dates of the three incidents, we cross-checked the footage to try and find any repeat boats on the nights in question, and we watched a lot of footage. There was only one boat that stood out, a large, older black speedboat being driven by a lone individual that we couldn't make out details of. A red light glowed from inside the cabin. Connolly and I got pictures of the boat printed and went back to check the marinas and the harbors. None of the docks that we went to had seen the particular boat or had records of it, which made us think that it was docking at a private residence. I spoke to one of my friends in narcotics named Waco, and he brought up the drug boats that had been populating the cove near the last dock that we had visited. It turned out that the many drug users in our city had been moving away from alleyways and SROs and onto small dinghies and drug boats, turning them into floating pill houses. The boats were harder for cops to break up or investigate, and you could float in or out of the cove and the nearby channel for up to six months before having to vacate. Of course, the six-month rule was never enforced, so the cove kept getting busier and busier with more and more drug boats. Waco offered to help. He went in one night and made his way around the 30 or so boats which were loosely tied together. Waco found our black boat. He learned the owner was a guy that people called Red. He was a dealer and let people use and pass out on board his boat afterwards. The next night, Waco went back and we followed him from a distance with the Coast Guard. We had Waco wired so that we could hear everything on board. His plan was to get on with a few others, to buy and use some heroin and then pass out. He would fake the shooting up part and pretend to fall asleep. 
Connolly and I listened in, hearing the details of the casual conversations going on from the other users as they bawled and started prep. Soon enough, all the voices went quiet, including Waco's. A rough, agitated voice called out, asking if anyone was awake. There was no response. The voice belonging to Red laughed and said, Good. We heard some shuffling and then the engine on the boat revving the gear. The boat peeled out, leaving the cove behind. Waco had a GPS tracker in his shoe, so Connolly and I watched the boat on a monitor as it headed out to sea. We followed from a distance. The Coast Guard's lights all turned off and went completely stealth. Connolly and I continued listening in. After several minutes, the engine died down. There were sounds of chains rustling and then clanking together. Waco's voice came over the mic in a hushed and frantic whisper. He's chaining us together. There's an anvil on one end. Our captain flipped the lights and sirens on and the boat gunned towards the blip on our radar. Over the mic we heard Red and noticed the sirens. He started to panic him from what Waco told us. He was about to toss the anvil over the side. But Waco was up and ready to fight. He surprised Red from behind and got him in a chokehold. When we arrived, Red was unconscious on the floor of the boat and Waco was sitting on his back. There were five users laying on the floor. They were all dead. Red had given them all spiked batches and they had died minutes before. When we got back to land, interrogating Red was useless and terrifying. Useless because he said nothing and terrifying because of how he said nothing. He had bitten off his tongue moments before we got him in the room. He was in a hospital for the next day and a half before we sat him down with a pencil and paper. We didn't really need Red to talk though. There was more than enough evidence to put him away for the deaths of the five users on the boat. And then divers found more bodies along the same stretch that Red had boated on. Altogether, it appeared that Red was responsible for the deaths of over 50 people. And that didn't include the beach volleyball tournament, the seniors home or the junior high school. The thing I remembered most about my brave time sitting across from Red during the interviews were his eyes, just like Patty. I watched his face move and twitch and wrinkle, but his eyes were always the same empty black holding my gaze. And we never got a reason or a motive for any of it. We found out that he had been in and out of foster homes up until his 16th birthday. Coincidentally enough, there was a house fire which killed both his foster parents and two other kids living there. After that, Red had disappeared for a few years and then got nabbed for an assault in a movie theater and he spent his 20s in and out of prison. Who knew how much destruction Red had caused over the course of his life? My third experience with truly evil was just as Connolly was nearing his retirement. Poetically enough, it was our last case together. We had been investigating the individual abductions of six Caucasian women between 18 and 22. It was a little old for grooming gangs and we ruled out trafficking. We had done a ton of legwork and repeat interviews with friends and family. No one went back on previous statements. Everyone was solid, we didn't have a single person of interest. We did have one connection between the girls and they all traveled in similar underground heavy metal and punk rock circles. They all appeared to have a similar fascination with Satanism. Connolly and I went over the details of each disappearance and found 
that they all coincided with a certain opening band that occasionally played at a weekly death metal show. They were called Helveti and were a Norwegian black metal band. They were known for covering themselves in what looked like blood and performing in mass. Each mask was different, but followed the typical design of a face with eyes, a nose, and mouth. But the texture looked like dried skin. Dark, wicker twigs stuck out of the back of the head, resembling a porcupine. The more that we read of them, the more they became our suspects. Connolly and I got an address and decided to go introduce ourselves. The place was on the outskirts of town, surrounded by a large plot of land and forest. We parked up the driveway and I'll admit, the walk up to the house, I was feeling nervous. It was dusk and the sky was a darkening gradient of orange to dark blue. The residence itself was a large old farmhouse. Death metal blared from somewhere inside, thudding out through the shuttered windows. There was a large black van parked out back and two sedans in the front. A scream erupted from the house, louder than the death metal rock. I pulled my 9mm and Connolly pulled out his 38. We called for backup and went in through the front door, which was unlocked. The interior had a staircase to the right that led upstairs and a hallway to the left that led to a living room, a dining room, and a kitchen. More screams erupted along with the pounding music. We could tell that the screams were coming from below us. I found a door leading to a staircase in the basement. The screams and music got louder and they were joined by chanting. Connolly led, trigger-fingered, creeping his way down the stairs. As he got to the bottom, Connolly swung open to clear the room, but someone was there. A tall mountain of a man in a dark mechanic suit, wearing one of the groove's eerie masks, and it swung down at Connolly. Connolly saw it coming though, firing his 38 into the guy. My right ear blew out and my left was filled with ringing, chanting, and screaming. As I got my head back on, I saw that the man had swung down at Connolly with a hatchet, and it lodged into Connolly's neck. He fell back but continued firing into the far end of the basement. I let my 9mm lead me around the corner. There were old bed sheets hanging from the ceiling, obscuring my vision of the basement. The heavy metal kept pumping and the chanting grew, but the screaming had stopped. I wanted to check Connolly, but I needed to clear the room. I stepped over the body that Connolly had shot and followed the chanting. It led me through the sheets and into a large opening. Dozens of red candles were lit. There was a circle drawn on the floor and inside it was an inverted pentagram painted in what looked like blood. In the far corner the ground was dirt and I could see several graves protruding from the earth. At the center of the pentagram a young woman wearing barely rags was chained to the floor and had just given birth. On each point of the pentagram around her were what appeared to be the remains of five recently delivered and now gone babies. Kneeling in front of the exhausted and crying woman was another band member, dressed similar to the previous hawk, but smaller and with a slightly different mask. He held the newest and just delivered baby in his hands as it cried. There were two other figures in the room, one over each of the kneeling guy's shoulders. The one to the right was holding a large, traditional two-handed sledgehammer. The handle was thick wood and the mallet was solid iron, lined with carvings and covered in blood and innards. The guy on the left was holding an open book, and had been guiding the others in the chanting. 
and we all stared at each other in some strange, horrific standoff. And the guy with the sledgehammer pulled first, lifting it to swing at me. I leveled up on him and walked two rounds into his chest before turning to the other two. The guy with the book threw it at me and lunged, and I managed to get two more rounds off into him, but his momentum carried him through me and we hit the floor heavily. My head cracked the ground hard and I saw the familiar stars rushing the edges of my vision. Everything sounded like it was underwater, but I was moving really fast. I managed to turn my head and saw the one remaining band member, the one holding the baby. He had placed it on the ground in the center of the pentagram. He had grabbed the sledgehammer from his dead friend, and he lifted it to slam it down on it. I didn't even realize it, but I still had my 9mm in my hand. Reflexively, I pulled the trigger repeatedly until it clicked empty. The final shot connected with the guy's head as he was about to swing down. He toppled back and the sledgehammer fell safely to the side. I don't remember much else after that. I woke up in the hospital and was informed that Connolly had died, as had all the band members. The baby and the young woman had survived though, so there was that. The investigation was taken over by two other detectives and revealed that the band had been taking women from shows, bringing them back to the farmhouse, and trying to impregnate them. Once they had gotten six pregnant, they had planned a mass, ritualistic sacrifice to be conducted after the final birth as an offering to the devil in some weird bargain. The other women had been killed after the deliveries and were buried in the far end of the basement. I never saw any of the band members' eyes when they were alive because of the mass, though I'm sure if I did, they would carry the same darkness as Patty's and Red's. I said that I had seen true evil three times in my career, and that's true. But that last time, there was more to what happened than what I put in my reports. It's the reason that I retired immediately after the case. It's the thing that made me realize that there was an evil I couldn't even begin to comprehend. I had seen it right when I got into the basement and leveled off my 9mm at the three men. There was something else down there with us. It was floating in the middle of the circle. Kind of like black smoke, but it stayed in place. Wafting together before separating and reconnecting. Bolts of red electricity shot through it. The smoke got larger as the chanting grew. It pulsed and expanded and reached out, forming into the shape of a body. What gives me nightmares now was thinking about if that last baby had been killed and the smoke had finished solidifying. I'm terrified that whatever it would have manifested into would have shown me another realm of evil. Thank you to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's podcast. You guys may have heard me talking about VPNs in the past because honestly, it's pretty important stuff. I may be Mr. Creeps, but there are some real world creeps out there that want to spy on you and gather your data. And that's why you need to be using ExpressVPN. Every time that you connect to an unencrypted network, in cafes, hotels, airports, basically any network that's not your own, your online data is not secured. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data, your passwords, financial details, you name it. The way ExpressVPN protects you is by creating a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that hackers can't steal your data. 
Hackers can make some serious money selling personal information on the dark web, but ExpressVPN has made it easier than ever to keep your information safe. Just fire up the app, click one button, and you're instantly protected. And ExpressVPN works on all your devices, like laptops, phones, and tablets, so you can stay secure on the go. Secure your online data today at expressvpn.com slash mrcreeps and get three extra free months. That's expressvpn.com slash mrcreeps. expressvpn.com slash mrcreeps. I used to work in a paper factory. There were dark places where no one went. Written by Horror Writer 1717. Factory work sucks. Anyone who's worked in a factory will tell you that. It's a boring, thankless job that no one really wants. The boss is there to get the quota out, and that's about it. You might say that he's concerned for your safety, but that's a lie. I used to work in a factory where they made paper products. I'm not talking about paper cups or plates. I'm talking about standardized tests and voting forms. We did a lot of government work. You know, the boring kind. However, we didn't get government pay. Management treated us like mushrooms and they fed us crap and kept us in the dark. What they did was overwork us and foster mistrust among employees. Being on your feet for 12 hours a night was bad enough in itself. Breaks were a joke. We would get two 10-minute breaks and a 20-minute lunch. The problem was that the break room was at the front of the plant. If you were unlucky enough to be working at the back of the plant, like me, you had to walk nearly a quarter mile to get to the break room. Of course, they didn't allow you walking time. Your break started and ended in a specific time, no matter where you were, no matter how tired you were, no matter how much your feet hurt. When your break was over, you better well be back at your station. What made things even worse was when the machine operator was a suck-up and ran the machine as fast as she could, with zero consideration for the people on her line that had to keep up. We didn't dare complain though, or she would just work us through the brakes. She just refused to stop the machine. Believe me, I've fallen victim to her attitude before. But how could she get away with that, you say? When one of her best friends happened to be one of these shift supervisors and believed every lie, I mean every word that she said, it wasn't too much of a stretch to say that she could do whatever she pleased. There was a clear class distinction at the factory. The upstairs people, management who rarely deigned to go slumming on the factory floor to see how the factory really worked. And then there was the rest of us. The poor slobs who lurched into work every night and limped out every morning. I used to compare us to the Morlocks and the Elo from the Time Machine. They, the Elo, were the clueless upper world dwellers who lived a perfect life, free of any kind of problems. We, the Morlocks, were the creatures they kept in the dark, working endlessly to keep their perfect world running. I just wish the comparison wouldn't have ended there. I would gladly pick a few of the upper dwellers for a permanent trip to the underworld. But I digress. Yes, factory work sucked, unless you had one of the golden jobs that got you off your feet. These jobs were forklift drivers. Many times I looked down in envy at the forklift drivers who would sit in their lift waiting for us, 
the actual workers, to fill the pallet with whatever product we were making so they could swoop in and take it away to the trucks or the shelves or wherever they took it to. So naturally, the day that I found out I was being made a forklift driver, it was the happiest day in my factory career. It didn't even compare. The forklift job was so much better and easier than the slave labor of working on a machine. I came in and got my coffee, and went to my little driver's shack back in the corner of the plant, where things were relatively quiet. And then I checked my forklift to make sure that I had a full battery, and off I went, zipping around as happy as a kid with a new toy. For months, I was flying on cloud nine, happy to come to work for the first time in a long time. I didn't think that I could ever be unhappy in that job. Man, was I wrong. It happened one day when we were running a booklet that we hadn't run in a long time. There were huge rolls of paper that weigh upwards of a ton that were stacked on top of one another in towers that reached all the way up to the ceiling. Unfortunately, since this was a seldom used paper, it was all the way at the bottom. So I had to unstack all the rest of the rolls and put them somewhere so I could get to the one that I needed. This not only took a while, but we also happened to be extremely busy that night. The day shift had left us with a mess to work out and I was busier than a termite in a sawmill. So the machine that couldn't run until I unstacked the paper kept calling me, asking when it would be there. In the meantime, every other machine needed tending as well. It was not a good night. Of course, when you're rushing, you're more prone to make mistakes. I misread one number and brought the wrong booklets to the machine that happened to be run by the evil suck-up operator. Once she started running the books, she realized they were the wrong ones. And instead of working to fix the problem, she wanted to scream at me that I was making her fall behind. I was making everyone else fall behind by attending to her problem, but she didn't care about that. I worked through both of my breaks trying to catch up, but nobody seemed to care. Once all the little whiners were happy, I went back to unstacking the paper rolls. When I finally got to the bottom roll, I noticed something strange. There was a place that seemed unnaturally dark. Now don't get me wrong, when you're dealing with towers of paper rolls that stretch to the ceiling, there are plenty of times when they block out the light. The entire area where the rolls were stacked was darker for that reason. Where I had unstacked was directly beneath the light, but at the bottom, it was still dark and there was no earthly reason why. I got off my forklift and I grabbed a flashlight. I approached the cloud of darkness curiously but cautiously. I shone the flashlight into it but the light had disappeared. It was like it just sucked the light out of the air. I stepped to the side and could see behind the cloud. I stepped to the other side and the same thing happened. I took a step closer to this strange phenomenon. I held the flashlight closer to the edge of it, and as I did, the light disappeared. I pulled the flashlight back to make sure that it was still on, and it was. I extended the light into the darkness again. This time, the flashlight went all the way in, including my hand. The air felt cool, but not cold. My curiosity overwhelmed my common sense, and I let my arm slide further in. It felt like empty air. 
There were no obstructions and nothing touched my hand. For some reason I felt drawn in further, like I had to know what this was. And I stepped into the cloud, and as soon as I did, my vision went dark. I couldn't even see the light from the flashlight. I panicked for a moment, but felt pulled further into the darkness. And then I was through. I was on the other side. I looked around and found myself still in the factory. I was where the paper rolls were stacked. I was basically in the same place, except it was different. The lights were dimmer and they had a reddish hue. They cast everything in an eerie red glow. I wondered if we had lost power and the emergency lights were on. I stepped forward and looked around. Many things seemed the same, but there was no sound. No machines running, no forklifts, zipping here and there. No voices on the intercoms. It was completely still. Even the air didn't seem to be moving. My mind set an emergency alert saying that I didn't want to be in this place. I turned to step back through the cloud, but it had vanished. I looked around and it was nowhere to be found. It was strange because I had only taken a few steps. I decided to look around and see if it would reappear. I walked over to the paper press machine that had been running when I was unstacking the paper rolls, but it was still. No one was there attending it. And there was something else odd. It had a layer of dust on it as if it hadn't been used in years. But the strangest thing was the pile of bones sitting on the floor in front of the machine. I recoiled at the sight of the bones that glowed red in the ambient light. I backed away from them, wondering whose they were and what had happened. For one ludicrous moment, my eyes darted to the first aid cabinet, and then I came to my senses and retreated from them as though I expected them to reanimate and lunge for me in a horror movie style. I was rattled. Why and how would that happen? If someone was playing a joke, it wasn't a very funny one. Keeping an eye on the bones just to be sure, I went over to the machine where these suck-up had been running their workers to death. It was also still and had a layer of dust on it. As I approached, I saw another pile of bones. They glowed red in the light, but when I shone the flashlight on them, they were as white as white could be. Strangely, they were piled in the spot the operator would stand. I stepped away and went down the length of the machine, finding another pile of bones in the next station. This went on for the entire machine. Wherever there was a workstation, there was a pile of bones. What the heck was going on here and what was that dark cloud? Did I just pass into some personal nightmare? Everything about the factory looked the same, except for the disused machines and the piles of bones. Had I somehow transported back in time? Questions bombarded me as I continued through the old part of the factory finding not a living soul, but bones and machines where they should be. As I roamed in total silence, something else struck me as odd. There were no supplies on the shelves, no completed projects waiting to be shipped, no booklets to feed into the machines, and nothing. As I went from the old section into the new, I was suddenly attacked by sound. It was as if someone had just flicked a switch and turned it back on. I looked over at the machines and quickly dove for cover. There were operators here running the machines, but they were skeletons. They were doing everything an operator should do. There was one loading the machine, another unloading it. 
and there was even a skeleton driving the forklift, taking the finished work and stacking it on a shelf. The strange thing was, as soon as the forklift driver would set a pallet full of finished work on the shelf, it would disappear into thin air as if it never existed. I stuck past a few more machines with the same bizarre crews. They were working just like any normal worker would on any given day. They just didn't have skin or muscles or eyes. I hit as best I could when the forklift went past me. Then I snuck around the machine and headed toward the break room. I peeked in through the window and saw several skeletons sitting at tables and the way workers would as if taking a break. The utter impossibility of the scene was wearing on my sanity. I kept trying to wake up as though this was a nightmare, but I couldn't. Past the break room was the main door to the factory. I quietly tried to open it, but it was locked. My escape blocked and I went to the stairs to the office. Usually I wouldn't be allowed upstairs. None of us common workers were allowed upstairs unless we were summoned. I made my way to the first office and peeked in. Instead of the skeletons behind the desk, there sat a nightmare. It was a corpse. The skin was sagging on her face with congealed blood in several places, and there were openings to see through her cheeks. I could even see the hint of teeth, but she was dressed in a business suit and going about normal daily routine things, like filing papers and typing on the computer. Even her hands were partially covered with skin and partly skin rotting off the bones. I waited until her back was turned to the door and slipped past to look in the other offices. The next few were the same. Rotting corpses, dressed in office attire and doing their jobs, as if it was the most normal thing in the world. Was I losing my mind? I found a chair in an empty boardroom and sat for a moment to collect my thoughts. What was this insane place? Was I in my own personal nightmare? Was this some purgatory for factory workers where they had continued to work on into the afterlife? As I pondered these things, I heard another sound. A growl. It wasn't like any earthly animal that I had ever heard. It was like somebody had combined the growl of a lion with the Tyrannosaurus Rex from Jurassic Park. The sound reverberated through the walls coming closer by the second. I felt a wave of nausea wash over me as the growl intensified. I searched frantically for someplace to hide, to get as far away from this thing as I could. My mind shuddered with fear, imagining the nightmare that was about to consume me. I found the darkest corner that I could and squeezed myself into it, praying that no part of me could be seen. As a last resort, I pulled a chair in front of me. Slowly so, it wouldn't make any noise. A cloud of mist drifted into the room, making me freeze in terror. I felt the first footstep before I saw the massive footstep into the room. It was like a giant claw attached to a massive, sinewy leg. It was covered in dark, scaly skin like a giant lizard. The slight opening between the back and the seat of the chair was my only protection, and my only way of seeing this horrid creature. The belly and arms were made of the same dark scales and for an instant, I thought that I saw a hint of leathery wings flowing behind it like a cape. I couldn't see the head and I was glad about that. I think if I had been able to, I would have screamed regardless of the danger. The clawed foot approached my hiding place. 
It paused in front of the chair, causing my mind to go into convulsions of fear. Somehow, I had the presence of mind to hold my breath. As I breathed in, silently, the horrid stench of death assaulted my senses. I stood there for an eternity. I knew that I was dead, and even worse, I felt this thing. This abomination had the ability to rip apart my soul as well as my body. Imagination gripped me and had told me all sorts of atrocities that were about to happen to me. And the creature's breath chugged like a steam engine, filling the room with more mist. And without warning, it stepped away from my hiding place. I felt the footsteps recede and the mist as well. From the direction of the footsteps, there was a sudden scream. It pierced the air like an arrow and it penetrated my ears. I nearly left for my hiding place. My nerves were shot. I was stressed out, trying to decide if I should stay or leave. My mind outlined the pros and cons while I slowly moved the chair from in front of me and extricated myself from my impromptu sanctuary. I slipped out of the doorway that the creature had entered, and I looked up and down the hallway. The doors all looked identical and I forgot which way I had come in. I mentally flipped a coin and turned right. I crept up to the open doorway and peeked in. Another corpse, dressed in a business suit, sat behind a desk. I slipped past the next door and found the same thing. All five doors down the hallway held the same scene. When I reached the end and turned the corner and there was another identical hallway, my fear and irritation battled for which was stronger. As I decided, one of the corpses came out of an office and nearly ran into me. And we looked at each other in horror and both screamed at the same time. I ran down the previous hallway as more corpses appeared looking around to see what was happening. As I ran past, they tried to grab me, causing me to dodge left and right to stay out of their grasp like some insane game of tag. I reached the end and found another identical hallway. Panic clawed at my mind as I dodged more corpses eventually finding the door that I had come in. And as I ran toward it, the monstrous demon turned the far corner. It opened its maw and shrieked the most horrible sound that I had ever heard. And then it flung itself at me, its leathery wings slicing through the air. And the corpses flooded into the hallway at the call of their master, throwing themselves at me with reckless abandon. I flung myself down the stairs, trying not to fall as I took them in, two at a time. The corpses didn't use such caution. They tumbled over each other, creating a macabre waterfall of decaying flesh. I hit the ground running, find the unfamiliar turf. I shot past the break room toward the newer part of the factory floor. The skeletons must have heard the call as well. The first few abandoned their machines as soon as they saw me. They tried to block the hallway, but I cut through the back door of the men's restroom and out the front. They quickly reversed their course joined by two others in pursuit. I ran into the open area of the docking bay and I was able to dodge the skeletons that were now joined by the corpses. I ran back to the old section where I knew every inch, every dark corner, every hiding place. I searched for the portal near these stacks of paper rolls where I had arrived in this familiar nightmare, but it was nowhere to be found. 
I circled the area to keep my pursuers at bay as I surged. My pursuers realized my tactic and began trying to outflank me. In the middle of avoiding a group of corpses and skeletons, the demon hovered down in front of me. I slid to a stop as its massive fist smashed the concrete floor in front of me, shattering it and sending dust flying into the air. The red light gave the dust a glow that made the place seem even more despicable. As evil as the red cloud looked, I used it to lose myself in the confusion. I dove and crawled and slid around every creature that I could make out. Some slashed at me with rotting nails or bare bones, but I kept moving. And the confusion was so great that the ones who knew where I would topple over tangled up with those who didn't. I was able to crawl out of the throng and make my way to an exit door. I tried it, but to no avail. It wasn't just locked, but it was solid. There was no give in the door at all, like somebody had built a brick wall behind it. I tried door after door that should have led outside, but they were all the same, solid and unyielding. As I searched for a way out, the red cloud had drifted toward me. They must have figured out that I had given them the slip and they were back in pursuit. I tried to think of the one place they wouldn't look for me until I could plan some other way out of here. I ran to the elevator and pressed the button. Nothing happened. I ran into the break room and desperately searched for something to pry the doors open with. I found a metal butter knife and shoved it in between the doors, opening them just enough to get my fingers in. I pulled with all my might. Straining as the doors crept slowly open, I saw the first of my pursuers. I squeezed myself into the elevator car as the doors slammed shut. I collapsed to the floor and sat still. I tried to slow my breathing as quickly as I could. I pulled the flashlight out of my pocket but didn't turn it on. I didn't want to risk even a sliver of light being seen from the outside. I focused on breathing deep, slow, and silent. The air was closed in the elevator, but at least there was no dang red glow, only darkness. Suddenly, I felt panic rising in me, realizing that I hadn't looked inside the elevator before diving in. I had a quick debate in which panic won over caution. I covered the flashlight with my hand, creating the eerie red glow that I had come to hate. I quickly panned around and found nothing. I doused the light as I heard the dead and decaying lumber by like it was a shift change. After the crowd was gone, I heard the heavy footsteps that could only be the demon leader. They passed the elevator and then they paused. I held my breath, not knowing if it would be my last, unsure if that monster would punch right through the doors and drag me to my doom. The silence was thick enough to cut with a chainsaw. I didn't dare move. The thing was waiting and listening. And then the doors exploded inward. They just missed me as they embedded themselves in the back wall of the elevator. The demon glared down at me. I was dead. By some miracle, instead of cowering and accepting my fate, I jumped up and climbed out of the top of the elevator, aided by stepping on the doors that were embedded in the wall. It didn't seem to expect that. Its claw slashed the air just beneath my foot as I clambered out and shone my flashlight up the shaft. It was dark, but the top seemed to be extra dark. My flashlight couldn't penetrate it. I nearly jumped for joy. I had found the portal. 
I only prayed that it would stay there until I could get to it, if I could get to it. I began climbing the access ladder with every ounce of quickness and agility in me. Below me, the monster was tearing the roof of the elevator to shreds, trying to get to me. It became a bizarre foot race as I climbed with all possible speed. My foe, however, was cheating. He flapped his wings twice and shot upwards towards me. I was frantic and despondent, knowing that it was going to catch me inches from my salvation. And just then it roared as I saw his wings hit the metal framework inside the shaft. Hope burgeoned inside me as the monster's struggles gave me the precious seconds that I needed. I reached the top of the ladder and flung myself into the open air above the portal. For one horrible moment, I felt myself falling and I knew that I was wrong. This wasn't the portal. I was falling to my death in the feast of the beast that pursued me. I landed hard on something solid yet oddly soft. Opening my eyes, I looked at the surface that had knocked the wind out of me. I felt it with my fingers and I knew that it was carpet. Behind me, someone cleared their throat. I turned to see the owner of the company sitting at his desk. I struggled to my feet, feeling the adrenaline crash coming on. Who are you and how did you get in here? He said, looking me up and down. I took in my own appearance, forgetting about these shredded, dirty and bloody clothes that barely clung to me. I opened my mouth to say something, and then realized that no matter what I said about the trauma that I had just been through, it wouldn't be believed. I mean, I wasn't sure I believed it myself. I smiled at him and said, Just a lovely Morlock, sir. He growled softly, reminding me of a sound that I had heard recently. I turned and left his office. And glancing in at a well-dressed office workers as I walked through the well-lit hallways having flashbacks to the deadly pursuit. I knew that I couldn't spend one more minute in that place. I walked out the main door, grateful that it opened, and never stepped a foot back inside that factory. I still have nightmares even months later. It's only now that I've gathered the courage to tell my tale. And that'll conclude today's lineup of stories. Thanks so much for listening. And I would also like to extend a large thank you to today's sponsors. Upside. Download the free Upside app and use promo code MrCreeps to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. And ExpressVPN. Secure your online data today at expressvpn.com slash MrCreeps and get three extra free months. The air outside is getting more crisp and the leaves are starting to turn. My favorite part of the year is finally just around the corner. I hope you all have an amazing fall season and remember to stay safe, stay healthy, and most importantly, stay creepy.